Today in our scripture reading, we will be reading a passage from Joel in the Old Testament. We're reading chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. Pastor Bruce will be getting a new series entitled, Turn to the Lord. If you need a pew Bible, you can find in front of you and this passage on page 903. So, follow along with me as I read Joel chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. The word of the Lord came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. Let their children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust has left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awaken, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and has fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste to my vine, and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark, and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed, the ground mourns. Because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the fields of the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple, and all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests, wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from Almighty has come, it's not the food cut off before your eyes. Joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seed shrivels from under the clods, and the storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan, the herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call, for the fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and the flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up. The fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this opportunity to gather and worship. And so, God, I, I pray for us today as we listen to this passage. The title should, should say everything, God, that we need to turn to you. And much like the 
Israelites of the Old Testament, so we often need reminders constantly to turn back to you, God. I pray that you would give Pastor Bruce the words to speak. I pray that you would give us open hearts as he preaches your word, God. In your name, amen. Well, as Jerry said, we're beginning a, uh, a brand new sermon series this morning in the, or as, as J- Jeremy said, Jeremy, not Jerry, Jeremy, and uh, beginning a brand new sermon series in the book, Old Testament book of Joel. Uh, he's one of the minor prophets. In fact, this chapter is only three, three chapters long, uh, and yet it's very powerful, even though it is short. And we're calling this series simply Turn to the Lord, because that is the heart and the theme of Joel's message to God's people. Turn to the Lord. And uh, I think you would agree with me. I think it is uh, without a doubt, it is true that we are living in a time and in a day when gladness has dried up for many, many people in our city, our country, and even across the world. If we went around the room here this morning, I bet you yourself, you could identify seasons where gladness has, has just dried up in your life. Perhaps even in your home, there's no joy. In your marriage, gladness is gone. Maybe in your job, your relationships, whatever the case may be. And in the face of great loss, which our country, our world has experienced in these last two years, maybe in the face of, of mass confusion, the joy that you wish lasted forever now is interrupted by seasons that just strip you bare. Everything pleasant seems gone. And no human has the resource or the power to restore you, at least in a, any lasting way, any meaningful way. And so where do you turn? Where do you turn when your gladness dries up? That is the question God's people faced themselves as a result of a disaster that devastated their lives. And now they are asking the question that is just as relevant for us here today. Where do you turn when gladness dries up? Where do you turn when disaster strikes? And what we're going to see throughout this, this minor prophet, Joel, this book here that is recorded for us, is that the book of Joel reveals that when disaster is here, the Lord is near. When Disaster is here, the Lord is near. In fact, the, the theme of this book and the message of this book is that God's terrible judgment has come, and yet His equally incredible grace is here as well. Now, the context of Joel, and specifically the first chapter here in Joel, is that God's people are are reeling in life. They are reeling from a locust plague that has reduced their country to a wasteland. Hordes of locusts devour everything in their path, and the people now sink into a very desperate time. I'm sure many of you, if not all of you, you've seen a locust before. You know what a locust looks like. I I kind of remember the first time I saw a locust as a kid. It was about three inches long. It looked like a heavily armed grasshopper, and I have to admit it kind of scared me a little bit. 
And so now when I read the book of Joel, and specifically the first chapter here, that solitary locust as a kid now comes into my mind, but a horde of locusts, a swarm of locusts would be far different. And for the people in Joel's day, it certainly was different. It was horrific, it was devastating, and it was overwhelming. Now they had seen locusts before. Probably hordes of them over the years, but, but this particular locust plague was unprecedented. As Joel himself states here in verse 2, he says, Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? It's a rhetorical question. It's, and the obvious answer is no. It's unprecedented. Now today, here in America, where a locust plague is rather quite remote, we can hardly imagine the destruction and even the desperation caused by a locust invasion. But there have been similar invasions of locusts even in our modern times. For example, in 1915, a plague of locusts covered Palestine and Syria when a swarm of locusts appeared in the sky so thick they actually obscured the sun like a dark cloud. Immediately they began to lay their eggs by digging holes in the soil about four inches deep and depositing about a hundred eggs in each hole. And these holes were everywhere. About 70,000 eggs were consecrated consecrated in a square yard of soil, and patches like this covered the land for miles. Within a few weeks, these young locusts hatched, resembling large ants. They had no wings yet, so they, they moved around by hopping along the ground like fleas. They would cover, it's estimated, anywhere from four to 600 feet a day, devouring vegetation in their path. And as they grew their wings, they began to develop the ability to jump and then finally the ability to fly, devouring anything and everything. They destroyed any and all plant life that's left. In fact, according to the December 1915 issue of National Geographic magazine, they stripped every leaf, berry, and even the bark on the trees. A locust horde and this, is not, this wasn't included in the National Geographic magazine article. This is my interpretation. A locust horde is like a middle school boys at a pizza party. <laughs> Basically, they leave nothing behind. Now, closer to home, in 1960, a locust horde actually attacked California. In fact, according to a newspaper in that day, in one county, two 100,000 acres were covered with locusts, and I quote now, over every inch and in some cases stacked on top of each other. Fields were left bare as the floor. One agricultural official said, what they don't eat, they cut off for entertainment. Today, areas that have the potential for a locust invasion are now monitored where emerging swarms are met by aircraft and even trucks carrying powerful pesticides. If locusts are not destroyed or contained soon after they hatch, control efforts are minimally effective once a swarm has formed. Such locust swarms can cover great distances. In fact, they have been seen 1,200 miles out to sea. They can be immense size. An area of 2,000 square miles was once recorded near the Red Sea in 1881, and they can contain huge numbers in very tight density, up to 120 million per square mile. A swarm 
in locust horde often blocks out the sun. It's been said that their noise can be likened to that of a jet engine due to the twofold sound of their, their buzzing wings and their crunching jaws. And as they get more desperate for food, they can get into houses eating food, clothes, fabric, and wood. In fact, one author claims that they can even gnaw through wood doors. After they die, it is said that they, they give out a, a revolting stench and their bodies breed typhus and other diseases in both animals and human beings. And so it is clear that a locust plague, especially like the one that God's people were facing in the Joel's day, it was a nightmare. Now, we here this morning, we can, we can hardly begin to appreciate the impact or even the thrust of Joel's message unless we somehow can enter into something of what he is describing here for us in chapter 1. But for most of us, a locust plague is an unknown experience. And yet, for the last two years, we have felt another type of plague, if you will. We have felt the challenging and even the devastating impact of a COVID pandemic. And so whether it's a locust plague or a COVID pandemic, it all raises all sorts of theological questions for us to ask and even to answer. Joel addresses these questions, and he even asks some of his own. They include questions such as, well, why is this happening to us? Who here has not asked the why in relation to COVID? Does God care about us? Does God care about the world? What is God up to? What's he doing about it? What is God saying to us? And that is perhaps the most important question we can ask. What is God saying to us through this? What should we learn? And of course, in, in our humanness, we obviously want to also ask the question, where do you turn when disaster strikes? Where do you turn when your gladness dries up? And that question is true, whether you're experiencing a disaster and a crisis on a national level, a world level, or maybe even just on a personal level. And I'm sure there are some here, you're going through your own personal crisis now. The holidays were awful for you. And you're somewhat desperate. And the gladness has dried up in your life. And you're asking, where do I turn? Joel speaks to this. Joel speaks loud and clear to this. These questions here, they are timeless and they are relevant to any people of any country at any time in the face of any such disaster, whether national, global, or personal. And so what we have here in the book of Joel is an ancient prophet, the ancient prophet, but with a very relevant message for us today. Now, Joel was a prophet of God, and so let me answer that question of what does that mean. Well, notice this in your notes coming up on the screen. That means Joel was a messenger of God who spoke on behalf of God, and in particular to the people of God. Notice how the book of Joel begins here in chapter 1, verse 1. Hope you have your Bibles open to the book of Joel still. If you have a pew Bible, it's page 903. And notice what it says in verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, 
the son of Pethuel. Now, we naturally, we know very little about Joel other than what he tells us in the very first verse, which is not a whole lot. We know the name Joel means Jehovah is God, which is actually rather telling about Joel himself. He actually lives out his name here. The name also probably points to his father's genuine faith in Jehovah as God as well. We assume that Joel lived in the city of Jerusalem as a prophet of God during the time of this particular locust plague. But what we don't know is when this locust invasion occurred, nor do we know when Joel proclaimed God's message specifically. Many Bible scholars think it was maybe during the early part of King Josiah's reign in the 9th century B.C., but we're not for sure, and it really doesn't matter. The message of Joel is still here for us today. What we do know for certain, without a shadow of a doubt, is that the word of the Lord came to Joel. Now that is some claim. The Hebrew word here for came, it literally means to be. So the force of the phrase is that the the word of the Lord became a, a living, present reality to this prophet named Joel. In other words, Joel claims that God spoke to him and that his message that he had for the people now was from none other than the Lord himself. From the living, one true God. Now, Joel doesn't tell us how God spoke to him. Maybe he heard God's voice audibly. Maybe he had a vision at night. Uh, We don't know. What's important is that what Joel had to say is not a human message. It did not come from another human being. It is a message that was given to him by the one true living God. And here's the point of all this. God still speaks today. He speaks to you and I today through the timeless message of Joel as we now seek to apply it to our lives. And so as we pursue God's message through Joel it will become plain as well that Joel's theology, and what I mean by that word, his belief of what God is like and who God is, it is robust. In fact, one author, David Pryor, writes in his commentary, he says this, Joel sees the hand of God in the totality of human experience. He shares the heart of God for every human action and inaction. He talks of God's personal and direct involvement in all human affairs. Joel had the courage to talk of God's direct and personal involvement in current affairs and to assert that he and he alone had the answers to the national crisis of his day. So for Joel... Let me tell you, the locust plague, it is not random. Rather, it is relational. You see, Joel believes that God was using this locust plague to speak to his people and that his goal is to turn his people back to him and the grace and mercy that God offers to his people. So what does that mean for us? How do we apply this to our own lives now in our current context, even of a COVID pandemic? Well, let me break this down a little bit, and we'll see it in two different points. The first point is this. When disaster strikes, pay attention to the Lord. When disaster strikes, pay attention to the Lord. Joel's very first task is to call the people to pay attention to his message here 
in verse 2 when he says, Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. His very first words could be summed up, when disaster strikes, pay attention to the Lord. Whether that disaster or crisis again, whether it is national or whether it is personal. Pay attention. Pay attention to the Lord. He wants to speak to you. And the beautiful thing is God still speaks. He speaks to us through his word. In fact, Joel here singles out two groups. He singles out the elders and all the inhabitants of the land. And these two terms basically include everybody. In other words, by using these two terms, what Joel is saying is that everybody who is alive needs to pay attention to the Lord. Nobody should fall asleep. No one should tune out God's message by assuming, oh, it's for somebody else. As Joel says, hear this, give ear to this, to what I'm about to say. I'm a prophet of God. The word of the Lord has come to me, and I'm speaking on behalf of him. Hear this. Pay attention to the Lord. Why? Why, though? Because this disaster was unprecedented. Now, that's a word that has been thrown around quite a lot here in the last two years. Unprecedented. In relation to COVID. Joel actually doesn't use this word, but he says the same thing in relation to this locust plague in verse 2. He asked, has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your father? No. This particular disaster, it stands out in the history of God's people. And as such, notice how Joel discerns this disaster. This disaster from Joel's perspective, because God came to him to speak through him, this disaster is a wake-up call from God to warn not only present generations, but also future generations to turn to the Lord. You see, this disaster is a wake-up call. That is to be made known for generations to come. Joel says, notice it in verse 3. He says, tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to, one, to another generation. In other words, this disaster is such an unprecedented wake-up call from the Lord that it is never to be forgotten in the history of God's people. It is to be included with all the other acts of God in the history of God's people. And because this disaster is actually included in God's word for us today, listen, that means by application, we here this morning, we are included in Joel's message here. We're part of the future generations. That means we here, we need to give ear to this message. We need to open up our heart. We need to hear God's message to Israel. God is sounding the alarm about judgment that is coming, and he summons us now to turn to him when gladness dries up in the face of disaster. Now, what is this unprecedented disaster that has afflicted God's people. Well, we've already alluded to it. Notice this in your notes. Joel describes the disaster this way. It's a great locust plague. 
and it has invaded the land of Judah, and it has caused catastrophic destruction across the nation. And I just love how Joel captures the utter destruction of the locust plague in verse 4. You see it here. You can almost feel it when he writes this and pens this. Notice what he says again in verse 4. He says, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust left, well, the, well, the hopping locust has eaten. And then what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. In other words, what Joel is saying here in this one verse is that the land has been invaded by a swarm of locusts and not a green plant is left. Everything has been stripped bare, even the bark from the trees, according to verses 7 and 12. The locust horde is ferocious. Verse 6 compares them to lions who, who tear their prey to pieces. And so the impact of this locust plague would have been utterly devastating, and it would have continued long after the locust horde had gone. In fact, later on in chapter 2, verse 25, it refers to the years that the swarming locust has eaten. In other words, the years of devastation that it left behind. But there's something else that we need to consider here. If you were an Israelite who grew up hearing over and over again the stories, especially the story of the Exodus, what would now come to your mind in the face of a locust plague? Would would you not think, oh my word, God fought against the Egyptians with the ten plagues, and one of those ten plagues was what? Locusts. And God fought against the Egyptians with that plague. And now a locust plague has is, is come to us and devastating us. Is God not fighting against us? And you'd be right to think that way in light of the covenant that God made with his people at Mount Sinai because God told them way back that it would be this way if they disobeyed him. You go back to Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 38, and it actually includes locusts among the covenant curses. God said that the promised land that he gave his people, that he opened up the the Red Sea so they could go to the promised land. It was a land of blessing for his people, of his grace and mercy. They didn't deserve it. God gives it to them. And yet he tells them that that land, it would be plentiful if they obeyed God, but if they disobeyed, he would destroy the land. And now God, God is being faithful. God is being faithful to his word of judgment. He has sent the locust plague, and the effects are devastating. In fact, notice some of the effects of this locust plague. First of all, life's necessities were just stripped away, stripped bare. Life's necessities, the basic needs that people have were now gone. The people in Joel's day lived in in an agriculturally based economy. And so the locust plague stripped away all the necessities of daily living and therefore threatened the the economic stability of the nation. In fact, verse 7, it's interesting, it says... In verse 7, we read of these trees being stripped and thrown down. Verse 10 says the fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Now, that's interesting because we just see three things here. Grain, wine, and oil. 
That may not mean a whole lot to us, but you find these three things lumped together in Scripture, oftentimes, especially in the Old Testament, and they were the basic necessities in their diet. But now all three of these things are just stripped away, gone. And even the farmers of Joel's day are affected by this plague. Verses 11 and 12 says, Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil, farmers. Well, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languages, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up. And according to verse 17, the storehouses that would store all the barley, the wheat, the, the harvest, if you will, from the farmers, the storehouses are desolate. There's nothing left on the shelves at High V and Price Chopper. The fridge is empty. People are starving. And even the animals feel the impact. Verse 18, notice what it says. How the beast grows. Why are they groaning? Because they're hungry. And there's no food. There's no pasture. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there's no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. And so the first devastating effect we see is that life's necessities were stripped away, stripped bare. Number two, their kingdom hopes were shriveled up. Remember the promised land. It represented God's kingdom on earth. And associated with that kingdom were numerous promises that were given to God's people, the Israelites. Consider the, one of the greatest promises, the first promise, that, that God would make Abraham, their, their forefather, into this great nation. And that Abraham's descendants would multiply such that you could not count them. More numerous than the sands Sand on the sea, stars in the sky. And yet in verse 6, it is not Abraham's nation that is great and beyond number, but it is the locusts who are now powerful and beyond number. Take the vine and the fig trees in verses 7 and 12. When the vine and fig tree prospered, for God's people in, in that day and age, for Joel, listen, it pointed to God's blessing on his kingdom people. But now what's going on? The vines are stripped, the fig tree is dead, and so are their kingdom hopes. Their kingdom hopes are shriveled up along with this. Which brings us to the third devastating effect. The temple offerings are now cut off. You see, the temples where God met with God's people. It represented God's presence among his people. Now, that doesn't mean that God was limited only to the temple, but he chose to manifest his glory there in the temple where the people would gather together. And under the Old Testament law, the priests would bring these offerings, regular grain offerings and drink offerings. And some of those offerings accompanied the, the daily sacrifices for sin. Others came at appointed feasts throughout the year as a way to, to celebrate God's wonderful provision and blessing upon their lives. In other words, these offerings, the grain offering, the drink offering, those offerings, they were, they were joyful signs of their relationship with the Holy God. They were times to give thanks times to rejoice in his presence and grace. But now what's going on? Without the grain, 
and the wine and the oil. There were no offerings left to bring. Verse 9 says, the grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. And so what Joel is saying is this. He is telling the people, listen, that this locust plague, it is not some random natural disaster. This is a relational disaster. The offerings of joy in God's presence were cut off. Therefore, it is now no surprise that you see this last devastating effect. The people's gladness was dried up. Joel alludes to this two different times here in chapter 1. You see it in verse 12 where he says, And gladness dries up from the children of man. And then later in verse 16, it says, Is not the food cut off before our eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God. Now we're seeing a little bit of this even now. We have seen glimpses of this across our country, more across the world in these last two years during COVID, that when the lack of basic necessities are stripped bare, it leads to sorrow, it leads to panic, it leads to despair. But more central to the loss of joy than just the loss of basic necessities, more central to the loss of our joy as God's people is a broken relationship with the Lord. And that's what Joel's getting at here. You see, that is the ultimate tragedy that Joel is speaking to. And Joel is trying to help the people to see that, that the great tragedy of our sin is that it dries up our joy in the Lord. And now God's people are feeling the effects of that. So what does Joel do? How does Joel teach the people to respond? What does he say to them? What are they supposed to do when their gladness dries up? Remember, the locust plague isn't random. It is relational. And so God was using it to wake up his people to turn to him. And so when disaster strikes, whether you are in Joel's day or whether we are alive in this day, we need to pay attention to the Lord. But there is a second applicational point here, and that is when disaster strikes, we need to cry out to the Lord. When disaster strikes, cry out to the Lord. Now, hear me on this, because the most important thing about Joel's response to the locust plague is that he sees God as responsible for it. Again, it is not some random disaster that happened apart from God's providence. Now, this does not mean that God is the author of sin. As if somehow God were directly responsible for the rebellion of Satan or even the transgression, the sins of Adam and Eve when they chose to disobey God in the Garden of Eden. But it does mean, especially given the sin-filled world in which we live, 
that God does not hesitate to sovereignly use disasters like a locust plague and even the suffering caused by it for our good and for His glory ultimately. Listen, that's the reason why God sent Joel to speak on his behalf about the current crisis in their day, about the locust plague. It is God's wake-up call to them to turn back to the Lord. You see, the locust plague in Joel's day, listen to me, it devastated Israel's economy, their society, their culture, and even their religious system. But it also revealed their utter helplessness apart from God. So what should they do? Where should they turn? And Joel says in verse 14, loud and clear, look at it with me. He says, consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and do what? And cry out to the Lord. Now, we'll talk about this a little bit more next Sunday, but it is interesting because Joel here, this is the first time, he calls for a solemn assembly. In other words, he calls the people to gather together. He will do the same thing in chapter 2. And it has practical implications and application for even us here today. In times of crisis, especially, whether it's national or whether it's personal, gathering with God's people should be our highest priority, not an afterthought. There's a reason why Joel, in the midst of a disaster, is calling the people together, gathered together, specifically then for the purpose to cry out to God. In fact, this Hebrew word means to cry loudly, to cry persistently. And God said of his people in Hosea chapter 7, verse 14, speaking of his people, listen, they do not cry to me from the heart, but they well upon their beds. For grain and wine, they gash themselves, they rebel against me. Here's the struggle that Joel's, the people in Joel's day face. It's a struggle we still encounter here today. When we are facing bitter days, it is not always our immediate reaction to cry out to God in brokenness. It's easier, much more common, to turn to ourselves and, in the words of Hosea, to well on our beds. In other words, to have a pity party to well on our beds and to blame God and to take it out on others. And almost always those others are the people closest to us. And this kind of response, it shows how rebellious toward God, or at the very least, it shows us how self-sufficient we can become even at times when we know that we need God most. And when we respond to bitter days in this manner, then like a locust plague, it will devour our faith in God instead of nurturing our faith in God. And so Joel's instruction here specifically, he is basically saying to the people and to us by application that we must abandon any trace of pride and self-sufficiency and anger or rebelliousness, and we must cry out to the Lord. Oh, could it be 
could it be that God is using the COVID pandemic in a similar way to speak to his people? Could could it be God's wake-up call for his people to turn to him? Not to the government. Not to your job. Not even to family and friends. We don't hope in those things. When disaster strikes, when crisis comes into our personal lives, and we turn to ourselves and what we can do about it, we are left still hopeless. And so could it be that these last two years, God is issuing us a wake-up call? He's trying to speak to us. At least it should cause us to to pay attention to the Lord. At a minimum, this pandemic should cause us to cry out to the Lord. So let me offer you some locust lessons for us here today. First locust lesson is this. Turn to the Lord in mourning. Turn to the Lord in mourning. Put on sackcloth and lament. Joel says in verse 8, look at it with me again. He says, lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. Now, the image is striking. The image is that of a young woman who's engaged to be married, only to have her fiancé die before the wedding can even take place. And so what a tragic picture the prophet paints for us. She is now forced to wear a black veil in place of a white dress. She, She cries bitter tears instead of joyful tears because the man that she loves is struck down by death as a result of this locust plague. Joel says in verse 13, he says, Put on sackcloth and lament, O priest, well, O ministers of the altar. You see, without the the grain offerings, without the drink offerings, the only thing the priests, who were the ministers of that day, the only thing they could bring to the table, in other words, was sackcloth and tears. There was nothing else to bring. And the sackcloth and tears... It actually expresses outwardly the inward seriousness of our hearts. One pastor and author describes lament. He says it this way. It is a prayer in pain that leads to trust in God. Oh, that we would lament. The pain in our lives is such that it drives us to trust God, to cry out to him. Joel calls the people to mourn over their sin and its horrific consequences. The Lord has removed his blessings. He has stripped them from their joy in his presence. And so the only proper response is godly sorrow that now leads to repentance and leads them to return to the Lord. So the first locust lesson is to turn to the Lord and to do so in mourning, lament, with brokenheartedness and contrition. The second locust lesson is this. Wake up to God's coming judgment. Wake up to God's coming judgment, for the day of the Lord is near. You look in verse 5, and Joel says there, he says, Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and well, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. What? What's Joel saying there? This terminology and language I'm not familiar with. So what does he mean? What's he saying? Well, drunkards are those who are enslaved to drink. We're familiar with that even in our day today. 
In other words, these drunkards, they don't look to the Lord in sorrow, but rather, in the midst of a crisis, they seek to drown out their sorrow with drink. And then there's just the drinkers of wine. Again, we're familiar with that even today because these people are not necessarily enslaved to wine, but they simply enjoy it as they go about their days without a care, thinking that their lives, even in the midst of a disaster, are the fine as the wine they are drinking. Nothing is wrong. I still have my job. I still have my house, my car. Pandemic's going on. Even though the stock market was great last year, this week it stinks. You know what? I'm still pretty secure. My life is fine. I don't need to pay attention to the Lord. I don't need to cry out to him. That's what these people are like. That's what Joel's referring to here. And yet both groups find themselves on equal footing before the Lord. Both groups must be careful not to hope in the wrong things, in the things of the world that are temporary. Both, if not careful, will miss the very purpose of the locust plague. It is a merciful gracious, loving warning of God's coming judgment. This is why Joel says later on in verse 15, he says, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near as destruction from the Almighty it comes. And this is where Joel is most direct. We will talk about this more next Sunday. But the day of the Lord is coming, he says. And what he is alluding to and referencing here in chapter 1, he is preparing the people for that day of the Lord. And he's doing so by saying that the locust plague, which is a historical invasion on their country, he's saying that, as unprecedented as it is, that is but a foreshadow of God's all-consuming judgment that is coming in the day of the Lord. And so the locust invasion is nothing more than a prelude to something far worse. And in the context of the Old Testament and Joel's people and Judah, probably enemy invasion from the north, from the Babylonians as they come, and we know that took place in Joel's day, and certainly It is a prelude and points to a day of final judgment when Christ returns. And so whatever else Joel may be saying or may not be saying with this day of the Lord, he is now emphasizing as strongly as he knows how that this great and terrible day of the Lord, folks, it is coming. Wake up to it and turn to the Lord for your deliverance. We must wake up before it's too late. And this brings us now to the third locust lesson. Recognize your inability to survive without God. To you, O Lord, I call, Joel says. What Joel does here, he actually gives the people an example to follow when he himself says in verse 19, to you, O Lord, I call. And don't miss the direction of Joel's cry. Because it is crucial. He cries out to whom? The Lord. He doesn't cry out to anybody else. Why? Because the Lord is Joel's only hope in this disaster. He recognizes even his, as a prophet of God, his inability to survive without God. 
Joel says in verse 20, even the beast of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. And the implication by that little statement there, Joel in verse 20, is this, that even the animals know what to do in a disaster and they know where to direct their cries. And now what he's doing, he's basically asking this, what about us? What about human beings? What about the people of God? Where do we cry out to? Who do we turn to? Do we cry to the Lord? You see, Joel knows that God is the one who is sovereign over the locust plague. Joel himself says in Joel 2.25, or God himself says in Joel 2.25, he says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, God says, which I sent among you. And so Joel makes it very clear God is responsible for this locust plague. And if God sent it, that means he rules over it and he alone can do something about it. There's no other one to cry out to besides the Lord. And so Joel cries out to the Lord while inviting the rest of God's people to follow him. But keep in mind, it's not merely Joel inviting the people to cry out to God. It is who? It is God himself who offers this invitation. Remember, God is the one who sent Joel to his people in the face of this disaster, which means that even in the face of this disaster, God is still extending his mercy and grace to his people. He doesn't remain silent. He doesn't abandon them. He still speaks to them. And God waits for their cry of repentance of sin. He waits for the cry of dependence on him. And even though God's response doesn't come, we won't see it until chapter 2. When it comes, it is an outpouring of extravagant, incredible, abundant grace and mercy. Now we'll have to wait till next Sunday, the following Sunday, to see that outpouring of grace and mercy. But for now, I want us to reflect on what we should take away from this chapter here. And by the way, just so you know, application here in these minor prophets especially isn't as simple as just plugging ourselves into the story since we are not Israel. We're the church. Nor does it mean that every disaster, whether it's a modern-day locust plague or a COVID pandemic or a tornado or hurricane or whatever, that every time that happens, it means that God is punishing people for their sins. I am not saying that. And so we must be careful here not to, to immediately read ourselves into the text too quickly, and yet at the same time, there's no doubt God is still speaking to us today through the prophet Joel. So what is God saying to us? Well, he's saying two things. He's saying when disaster strikes, whether that's a national disaster or a personal disaster in your life, when that happens, pay attention to the Lord and cry out to the Lord. Who do you call when gladness dries up? Where do you turn when disaster strikes? And like the prophet Joel, listen, folks, let me implore you to turn to the Lord, for he is near when disaster is here. Joel urges you to cry to the Lord. 
when disaster strikes in your life and when the gladness dries up. Cry from your helplessness. Cry with all your sorrow. Cry to the Lord who is the only God who can do anything. Cry to a heart ready to listen rather than argue and blame or justify. Cry in humble admission that you have nowhere else to turn and that you are utterly dependent upon the mercy of God. When we meet circumstances in our own lives like those facing the people in Joel's day, may we, and even now, may we turn to God. And when we do, may we cry to him for mercy and help in our time of need. Listen, isn't that what we need to do when disaster strikes? Isn't that what we need to do even now? When the locusts overtake us, when we're stripped of of all possible hope in ourselves, when our gladness dries up, listen, we turn from every other comfort and refuge and security and solution that this world offers us, and yet will leave you wanting more. It will leave you hopeless, and we turn to none other than the Lord God Almighty. And we turn to him saying what Joel said, Lord, I have nowhere else to go to you, O Lord, I cry. With your heads bowed. Man, maybe you're at a place in life where you need to do that right now. Disaster has struck. You're in a personal time of crisis. The dryness has gone. It has dried up in your life. Hope is shriveled away. And I wanted to give just a few minutes here, just a moment for us to cry out to the Lord and just admitting our place in life and admitting we need God's help. We need God to intervene. We need his mercy and grace. Would you do that even now? Heavenly Father, we come to you. We come humbly. We come broken. We come acknowledging your sovereign goodness and grace to us, and yet, Lord, we know that we need you so, so much. And oftentimes, we turn away from you. And so let us now turn back to you. Let us cry out to you for hope the hope that is found in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, let us lament and mourn, and yet let us be hopeful of what you offer us in your son, Jesus Christ, and that is the forgiveness of our sins. You offer us eternal life, abundant life, even here and now. And so let us turn to you and cry out for help. In your name we pray.